Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. Ahead, we'll look back 40 years to a botulism poisoning. It was among the largest outbreaks in the country's history. It happened in Peoria. We'll talk with one woman who was affected. Also, the influx of migrants to Chicago could be an opportunity for another Midwestern city, why St. Louis might be looked at as a new home for some asylum seekers. A woman discusses her mother's memoir, Escape from Dachau, and the suffering her family endured during the Holocaust. The Art Institute of Chicago is one institution at the center of a controversy over art that some say was stolen by the Nazis. Monarch butterflies are making their annual journey to Mexico. We'll hear about volunteers who chart their progress. And a student newspaper in Illinois formally apologizes to a musical icon. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. 28 people were poisoned by the botulism toxin after dining at a Peoria restaurant in 1983. The culprit contaminated sautéed onions on a patty melt. It was one of the largest botulism outbreaks in U.S. history. Lou Dobrynia was one of the people affected. She tells Tim Shelley what it was like when botulism symptoms first began to affect her at work. I'm teaching driver's education on the third floor of Limestone High School. And I have a tiered classroom, which it's kind of like the old halls here at Bradley used lecture to have le- old lecture halls. And I am sitting in my classroom, and I'm looking at the third floor or the third level of my students. I can't see them. Oh, wow. They are outlines of figures, and my eyes are becoming half masked, so to speak. They're closing. I mean, I have no control over it. And I, all of a sudden, can't get my neck up. It just would droop, and my chin would touch my chest. So I said, oh, no, something is really bad. Something bad is happening here. So I thank God my classroom was right next to the teacher's lounge, and at those times, there's not cell phones. You used one main phone. So I try to walk literally less than 50 feet. I would bounce off the lockers like I had no straight line path. There was the room, the floor was spinning like I was on a a merry-go-round. I'm like, what is going on? So I call, I say, I need to go home. My assistant coach comes because he had prep hour and he's a bigger guy, picks me up carries me down the steps because I can't I can't walk and he takes me to another friend's house closer to OSF and Methodist and within a couple hours I'm like nope I gotta go to the hospital I can't breathe and everything just started to build and keep building it must have been terrifying just absolutely terrifying well when you really think that First of all, I was listening to what the doctors and nurses and everybody's telling me because that's who you believe. But you know that inside your body just isn't right. But where is it? What is it going on? And yeah, you used the correct word, terrifying, because your your world was one day one thing and then the next day it's something else, literally. So you're not sure where you're supposed to be or what you're supposed to think. 
So yeah, I was, I was starting to get a little concerned. Yes. Gosh. So eventually, uh, you know, the CDC gets involved and they bring in basically yep. antitoxin, right? Right, and basically um, now the paralysis of different body parts is setting in. Not only my facial, because it attacks the central nervous system, so the cranial muscles start to to lose muscle, whatever, memory, my eyes, my neck, um, my hands, my legs. And the CDC evaluated all, all of us because um, there were 28 of us at that time. And we were in the emergency room and we had to um, sign a document saying it was okay that they used this experimental um, kind of drug on us, which was a slow-dripped um, IV mm -hmm. of a very thick substance, but n none of us could write, so we would have an X, okay, and um, they would intravenously drip this antitoxin into us, and then we were to wait for the results, but in the meantime, they were doing blood gases, because I was fortunate. I never went on the ventilator. I they always would, but in the one way that was bad because they always had to keep doing blood artery work with which they called blood gases on me to see if my brain was still getting enough oxygen or not. To this day, there's some people said I should have went on the ventilator, but that's a <laughs> a joke. <laughs> um, anyway, I I was blessed. I did not have to do the ventilator, but. I hated the blood gases. And they would check your feet to see if you could move your toes and or whatever. So um, that was applied for, I think, 24 hours. Wow. So so gradually you, you regained some of that paralysis began to fade and you regained some of your, your movement then? Um, it would, when you say gradually, it was very gradually. Like some people ended up staying in the hospital like John Mason did. I think he was in for like 170 days. So everybody, everybody's body reacts differently. So everybody um, kind of sort of went in their own pace. To, to be honest, to I was in the wheelchair for a while. I had to stay off of work for a year and a half. Um, yes, I gradually could start walking and, and moving my hands and extremities. And But to this day, there are residual effects. Lou DeBrinia speaking to Tim Shelley about the 1983 Peoria botulism outbreak. Getting a scoop in the news business can be good. But sometimes being first can prove to be a problem. Let's go back to September 1969. Just days before the release of Abbey Road, the Beatles were the focus of the news. That's when the first murmurs of Paul McCartney's death began to circulate. Two Midwest student newspapers reported the hoax. The Times-Delphic of Drake University in Iowa and the Northern Star at Northern Illinois University. Over 50 years later, the Northern Star has apologized for its role in the Paul is Dead rumor. Cole Longcore has more. It's come to light that the Northern Star plagiarized their piece from the Delphic Times article. With me is Bridget Fox, the written managing editor for the Northern Star. 
imagine you're just going to school in your little Midwest college or university and um, you just get hired as a copy editor, which is what I was. And you're busy learning AP style, busy going to your classes. And all of a sudden, another editor is like, oh, hey, you know, we started uh, the Paul McCartney death rumor. And you're like, sorry, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? At Northern Illinois University? <laughs> it's been over 50 years since the piece came out. Why did the editorial team decide to do an apology now? I think the fact that people, no matter how, like, misled they were still attributed it to us was like I felt like kind of a stain on us how much of this guy's life regarding this rumor is like down to like it done to us and I say us obviously I'm 23 I had no hand in writing that piece I didn't I wasn't even born when the idea of the piece was out there but it's more of an institutional like embodiment that the staff has of um, of the piece itself, the original. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of something that um, no one cares if we weren't really there. They know that it's still attached to the name the Northern Star. When you were young and your heart was an open book used to say, live and let live. If Paul McCartney wants to reach out to the Northern Star, um, I think I'd absolutely die. Unlike him. <laughs> Paul, I hope you're in good health. Bridget Fox is the written managing editor of the Northern Star student newspaper. She spoke with Cole Longcore. Thousands of migrants in Chicago don't have a permanent place to live or work. The humanitarian crisis continues to grow as the city scrambles for solutions. But one neighboring Midwestern state wants to help relocate hundreds, if not thousands, of those migrants. Esther Yunji King has the story. Carlos Ramirez is vice president of Latino Outreach for the International Institute of St. Louis. He drove up to Chicago to make a pitch for migrants to resettle in his city. I talked with him at City Hall just after his meeting with Chicago's migrant point person. It was an exploratory meeting. It could be potential for a great relationship between both uh, cities. St. Louis needs more workers. The city's population has declined. And here in Chicago, thousands of migrants, mostly from Venezuela, have arrived since August of 2022. Many families are living temporarily at police stations and airports, and the city estimates more than $340 million could be spent on migrants by the end of the year. For Ramirez, an Illinois native who still roots for the Chicago Bears, the initiative could be good for everyone. And if the people are going to be in a better place, uh, St. Louis is going to be in a better place, and Chicago is going to be a better place, I think everybody wins. The city of Chicago did not respond to WBEZ's request for comment. A small delegation of city officials is currently visiting the Texas southern border from where Republican Governor Greg Abbott has been sending buses of migrants to Democratic cities. As for next steps, Ramirez says his group plans to create a one-page flyer for Chicago agencies to distribute to eligible migrants. 
He also hopes to secure as many beds in St. Louis as possible. We're conscientious of the homeless uh, populations, and so I want to be careful not to all of a sudden get an onslaught of homeless people from Chicago and then create a homeless situation in St. Louis. The group plans to vet proper documentation through the Biden parolee program announced last month. That program has expedited work visas for hundreds of thousands of Venezuelan migrants in the U.S. Ramirez says the resettlement program would provide up to three months of housing, cell phones, apprenticeship programs and job placement by local unions, and help from immigration lawyers. Ideally, within the first three months, they will be self-sustaining. The funds for the program will come primarily from private donors, and Ramirez says the partnership could even become a model for other cities and states to follow. The Latino Outreach Initiative is the brainchild of Jerry Schlichter, a prominent St. Louis lawyer and civic leader with experience resettling migrants. Two years ago, Schlichter started a program to bring Afghan refugees to his city. He says today nearly 2,000 Afghans have resettled there, found jobs, and started businesses and cultural organizations. Schlichter believes moving some of Chicago's migrants to St. Louis could help bolster his city's workforce. There's a tremendous need for uh, employees. He says iron and steel companies, grocery chains, restaurant operators, and manufacturing plants have all expressed a need for more workers, especially with the region's population shrinking. If you look around the country at cities that are growing, it's primarily from immigrants and children of immigrants, and that's what we're trying to build here. He says the goal is to make a more vibrant and diverse St. Louis that would benefit everyone. Esther Yunji Kang, WBEZ News. An Illinois girl from Sycamore is sharpening her reporting skills thanks to an international journalism program for children. Yvonne Boos has more. Evie Binkle is in fifth grade. The 10-year-old will take part in the Scholastic Kids Press Program. This international program has been around for over two decades. The magazine solicits youth to cover stories that children find important because of the impact it may have on them. It's basically, quote, news for kids by kids. Evie says the news program was the perfect opportunity because she was already taking part in an after-school club called Spartan TV Junior. She began this two-year project when she was nine. She says the idea to get into the news business started once she began receiving compliments. Even like without Spartan TV, people were like, oh, you have a really good vocabulary or whatever. And I was like, oh, thank you. And they're like, you could be a journalist. Applicants must be between 10 and 14 years old. Suzanne McCabe is the editor of the magazine. She says that age range is optimal. We find that by the age of 10, kids are very eloquent and articulate and can talk with important people and make their voices heard and also just conduct great interviews. McCabe says applicants are asked to submit an example news story that they wrote. Ebby chose to highlight a local organization that enriches children for her submission story. She wrote about a food pantry in her area and the needs that children have. I think there was a fire in one area that made it very difficult for kids to even get a meal. And often we think we should shield children from difficult topics. And many alumni of the program have gone on to become reporters. Nicholas Wu was a part of the program when he was 13. This Michigan native is now a congressional reporter at Political. 
He says this program gave him on-the-ground training that he may not have gotten as a kid. If I remember correctly, I reviewed a book. I covered the Detroit Auto Show, and I, I think I covered an exhibit at the Detroit Science Center, too. Wu says this project was a foundational experience for him. He is a part of the Asian American Journalists Association and is helping other aspiring journalists. I'm a board member of our DC chapter, uh, where I help manage some of our programming there. And then last year, I served as a mentor for AAJA's basically college student mentorship program, where I help teach basically a group of college students um, about feature writing. As for Evie, she's busy gathering story ideas for her new venture. There is one story that she is looking forward to telling. We have a festival in our town called Pumpkin Fest, and that's really special to me because a lot of my best memories have been at Pumpkin Fest. Evie will have plenty of support as she works through her stories. McCabe says the editing process happens over the phone and through other communication channels. Evie says it's important for children to see their peers taking part in unique things. Because even though sometimes people don't say it, sometimes you really just feel like, they, oh, because I'm a kid, I can't really do much. But I wouldn't be here right now without pushing that aside and knowing that no matter what, however old you are, however young you are, that you can do anything. Works by Scholastic Kid reporters can be found at the Scholastic Kids Press website and the Classroom magazines. I'm Yvonne Booz. We have more of Statewide just ahead. Stay right here. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Kathy Mueller-Slonim wrote a memoir about her father's escape from the German work camp Dachau in 1938, but she didn't want it published until after her death. When she died in 2021, her three children worked to get that memoir printed, Escape from Dachau, a true story of survival, courage, and a daring escape in the face of unthinkable evil, was released earlier this year. Maureen McKinney recently interviewed Slonim's daughter, Susan Service, about the book. If you could tell me why your mother didn't want to publish the story in her lifetime, because writing it must have been incredibly painful in the first place. That is exactly why my brother, sister, and I think she did not want to. First of all, you have to remember that not a word of what happened to my mom and my grandparents and their families during the Holocaust was ever spoken. Starting in the 1960s, the German government, various cities had invited German, former German citizens to return to Germany. It was, it was a program called Return of the Lost Citizens. My mom refused to go. She never wanted to step foot on German soil again. But in the year 2000, my brother, sister, and I thought it would be good closure for my mom to go. So my mom wrote to the mayor of Stuttgart, who, where the invitation came from, and said, I will go. And my mom said, I will go if I can bring my daughter and my 16-year-old granddaughter so that three generations can dance on Hitler's grave. Now, of course, we know Hitler wasn't buried in Germany, but it was the philosophical thing that she was willing to go if three generations could go back and say, here we are. 
So my mom took that trip and there were 20 survivors on that particular day, that particular trip. And as everyone else started telling their stories and started telling what happened to them, all of a sudden my mom opened up and was telling her memoir that I had never heard that my you know, my family, my daughter, no one had heard. And when we got back to the United States, she wrote it down. I understand why she wanted us not to do anything with it until she passed. Because as you and I are speaking now, I have gotten a lot of requests uh, from all over the world to talk about this event, this memoir, what happened. It's very hard to continue to think about the details of what went on and what my grandfather and grandmother and my mom experienced. So I understand why she did not want to do that. My grandfather refused to leave Germany. And by the time he woke up to what was really going on, they could not get out. But you have to remember that the Jews over the centuries were loyal and committed German citizens. They were not only doctors, lawyers, engineers, and architects, but they contributed to art and music and technology. And, you know, my grandfather served for Germany in World War I, as did most of my grandmother's brothers. And my grandmother and her sisters volunteered for the German Red Cross during World War I. So my grandfather refused to believe that anything bad would happen to them because they were so committed and such loyal Germans. He had a successful manufacturing business that actually used the technology established in the U.S. by Henry Ford. He was very successful. He had a lot of friends. His customers loved him. They didn't leave as many Jews starting in the early 30s. Once Hitler came to power in 1933, one of my grandmother's brothers came to the United States very early. Uh, other brothers went to Luxembourg and Belgium, but they got out of Germany, but my grandfather refused to leave. In 1936, my mom was thrown out of her uh, public school because Jews were no longer allowed to attend public school. And it was at that time, 36, where the brown shirts started roaming the streets, harassing and beating innocent Jews, putting swastikas on businesses and homes. And in 1938, they took my grandfather's business, his car, his home, everything. And of course, now America had closed her doors to more Jewish immigrants. So Jews were desperately trying to go elsewhere, Argentina, Israel, other countries in Europe, wherever they could go. But it was very hard at that point to get out of Germany, and they weren't allowed to leave Germany. And of course, November 9th, 1938, Kristallnacht when they started burning down Jewish synagogues and homes and businesses. And then the next day, November 10th, was when my grandfather was dragged out of his home and taken to Dachau. The interesting thing about the family, my grandmother had a first cousin, Emanuel Rosenfeld. He was a mathematician. He was you know, really brilliant in, in banking and math. And he worked at the largest bank in Berlin 
of the Reich Bank. Schach was president of the Reich Bank, and he brought in my grandmother's first cousin as the mathematician, the banker, the numbers guy. When Hitler took power in 1933, he took Schach from the Reich Bank to become his minister of finance. And who did Schach bring with him? His numbers guy, Emanuel Rosenfeld. And so Emanuel Rosenfeld, a Jew, cousin of my grandmother, actually worked in the government for the Third Reich for a very short period of time, because starting in 1934, 1935, he saw what was happening to the Jews, what Hitler's hatred and what was going on out there. And so he left his government position. He got scared. He changed his name to Max Emanuel and went into hiding. But he did one thing that was very smart. He did not get rid of his German government Third Reich identification papers that identified him as a member of the Third Reich and a government employee. He kept those papers. He applies to get out of Germany. And imagine this, the excruciating decision, because the day he got his papers to go to America, which was very rare at this point, this is now 1938, he got papers to go to the United States and he gets a call from my grandmother's brother saying that Adolf had been taken to Dachau and he had to do something to get him out. That is the basic part of the book, Escape from Dachau, how he made this excruciating decision to risk his life and in the middle of the night, drive the 500 kilometers from Berlin to Dachau to try to get his first cousin-in-law out of the concentration camp. And it's important to remember Dachau was the first concentration camp that all the other concentration camps were modeled after. It was started as a work camp where the prisoners, doctors, lawyers, engineers, these prisoners would be making the war machines. They were making the different equipment for the war effort, but many prisoners died in Dachau. Yes, it was a work camp. It was not an extermination camp with gas chambers yet, but the way they were treated, many prisoners died. And my grandfather recalled the situation where they were brought out naked in the snow in the winter and hosed off, and that was their showers. And many prisoners died from freezing to death or the treatment that they got at Dachau. What motivated Emmanuel to do this? Human nature is so unpredictable. There are those that run and those that decide to be heroes, to get involved, to do what needs to be done over their own safety and life. And the one huge puzzle that I will always have about the Holocaust was the collaborators, the neighbors, the friends that turned in their Jewish friends and neighbors, the people that did not help, that did not 
band together to say, we are not going to tolerate this. This is outrageous. That is part of the answer to what you just asked. What motivated, at this point, Max Emanuel to risk his life to save a cousin-in-law? He was brave. He was willing to make the sacrifice. And it's just, you know, one of the things that Escape from Dachau, the book, pays tribute to is people like him that showed true bravery, sacrifice, and resilience. What an incredible man he was. What an incredible human being he was. That trip, which is documented in the book, had to be terrifying because there were checkpoints all along the way. Now, you have to think about who are these Nazi guards at a checkpoint at one, two, three in the morning? Young Nazi soldiers who were afraid to do anything wrong because they would be taken out in the backfield and shot themselves. So when this Max Emanuel comes through the checkpoint, scared as can be, but mustering up as much bravery as he can, and he opens his window, and he hands them these documents that on the cover show that he is a government official for the Third Reich, he was passed through. And in fact, the interesting thing is no one bothered to open that packet because had they opened it, they would see that his name in the packet was Emanuel Rosenfeld, clearly a Jewish name. And that would have been the end of him. They would have thought he stole the papers or whatever. So he had to get through many checkpoints to get to Dachau. And it must have been terrifying, but he was willing to take that risk. How did he actually get your grandfather? So he arrives at the gates of Dachau, is sort of surrounded by these Nazi guards. What are you doing here? What is what is your business here? And again shows his identification and he says, bring me this Adolf Mueller in a very strong, as as strong as he can. Now they probably thought he was gonna take this prisoner and just shoot him right then and there. So he says, bring me this Adolf Mueller. And they went into the concentration camp and found my grandfather and brought him out. His cousin did not recognize him at that point. He was emaciated. He actually said, is this Adolf Mueller? Did you bring me the right prisoner? Oh, yes, this is Adolf Mueller. And then he kind of looked in my grandfather's eyes and immediately noticed this is Adolf Mueller. And he roughly put him in the car, backed out, and off they went. And basically, that's how he got him out. He just demanded that this prisoner be brought to him. He's a government official here on government business, and this prisoner has to be brought out. And it worked. Can you tell me about the situation of your mother's family? Um, She, her mother, and your grandfather, how did they get out of Germany? So first, let me back up and and tell you that when my grandfather was dragged off to Dachau, my grandmother brought my mom to the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church hid my mother. Max Emanuel knew where, where my mother was. 
the Catholic Church, the Sisters of St. Joseph, they taught these Jewish children all of the prayers, all of the liturgy, and the Nazis would come into these Catholic churches and they would line all the kids up, Jewish and not Jewish, and they would question them. And the Jewish kids knew as much as the Catholic kids, and then they would leave. So my mom was hidden by the Catholic Church, but we know that they drove from Dachau to Stuttgart, got my grandmother, got my mom, and drove immediately to Luxembourg, where my grandmother's brother had been living for many years. That is how they got out of Germany. And in fact, a number of years later, the head of the Sisters of St. Joseph, that priest was actually executed by the Nazis and no reason was given and documentation doesn't say why, but I think we know why, because he was hiding Jewish children. He also had written his memoir of what he knew. And so it's sort of a combination, but it's mostly my mom's writing and memory. Many survivors of the Holocaust went to their new countries wherever they landed and they did very well. My grandfather never really survived. My memory of my grandfather is him staring out the living room window smoking his cigar. I don't remember him ever smiling. I don't remember him ever talking, rarely, rarely speaking. They say that it has to do with what age they were when they went through this. Younger people were more resilient, and when they got out, they did okay. My grandfather did not survive the Holocaust, even though he was alive. He seemed to me, as a child, to be very sad and distraught over what happened to him. His sister and her husband and their children were sent to Auschwitz and perished, were executed in Auschwitz. So he lost other members of his family. He didn't speak of it. That is like many survivors that Correct. It, it's too terrible to talk about. Exactly. That's right. I know that my grandmother spoke to her brother and she probably, when they got to America or were leaving, explained things to my mom about what was going on, what was happening, why they were leaving their homeland, why all of their friends and neighbors had disappeared. But my grandfather never spoke a word. Maureen McKinney speaking with Susan Service. She's the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, Kathy Mueller Slonim whose memoir of her father's escape from Dachau was published posthumously and released earlier this year. A story of arts that allegedly was stolen during the Holocaust. That's ahead on Statewide. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. The Art Institute of Chicago is one of three institutions at the center of a dispute over art allegedly stolen during the Holocaust. Investigators in New York seized artworks by the Austrian expressionist Egon Schiele from museums in Chicago, Pittsburgh, and Ohio. The pieces were part of a larger collection owned by Fritz Grunbaum, an Austrian-Jewish art collector murdered at the Dachau concentration camp in 1941. 
Lisa Labas spoke with Patty Gerstenblith, a distinguished research professor of law and faculty director of art at DePaul University. Now, what is the Art Institute's argument for holding on to their pieces? Well, there were two earlier cases involving pieces from the Grunbaum collection, and one was heard in federal court in New York and the other in state court in New York. The federal court held that um, it was not a conclusive decision, but that um, Fritz Grunbaum's sister-in-law, so his wife Elizabeth's sister, Matilda Lukox, Uh, appeared in the 1950s and sold several of these works through a Swiss gallery. Uh, It's completely unclear how, according to this theory, these works got to the sister-in-law and then uh, for her to sell them later on. But in any case, there was a holding that while the current possessor did not prove the works were not stolen, which is necessary under New York law, it did hold that they were not stolen by the Nazis either. Um, So that is part of the Art Institute's primary argument that the works were not stolen. Now, is there a statute of limitations on reclaiming artwork that that was stolen during the Holocaust? Uh, Yes, there is. Uh, Under uh, New York state law, there is a statute of limitations. And then in 2016, Congress passed a special law called the Holocaust Expropriated Art Recovery Act, or the HERE Act, which extended the statute of limitations, but not, um, it it basically eliminated the statute of limitations defense under state law uh, for Holocaust, uh, claims for Holocaust uh, looted art. But the museums in the United States have certainly been criticized in in the past, in the recent past, for relying on what are called the technical defenses, things like statutes of limitations, to avoid getting to the substantive question of whether these works are in, were in fact stolen and whether they should be returned to the heirs of the victims of the Holocaust. So why are these cases so contentious? These cases of both Holocaust looted art and other kinds of cultural objects are not essentially about the money. These works are important to people, to families, particularly those that lost relatives, um, ancestors in the Holocaust. These are important to them for identity, for cultural significance. Sometimes these cases have religious significance. And so it is about that emotional, cultural, historical family connection to the works. And that is not something you can simply negotiate away. Do you have any way to know how much of the art and cultural artifacts that were stolen during World War II have actually been recovered? The number of objects that were stolen during the Holocaust or destroyed is massive. I mean, hundreds of thousands of objects. So the number that have been recovered is, of course, relatively small compared to the number that were stolen in the first place. The pieces that Hitler and Goering had taken for themselves and were in identified storage areas, those were returned immediately. Uh, or within a few years after the war. The ones that are being litigated today were mostly taken from private collections and were sold onto the international market. And so their location was unknown uh, in some cases for 50, 60, 70 years. And so there are new opportunities for litigation because of that. Patty Gerstenblith is the faculty director for art, museum, and cultural heritage law at DePaul University. Thank you, Patty. Thank you as well. Much has been written and said about the late civil rights leader, the Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian. Rich Egger tells us now you can add a musical composition to that list. 
It's called Portraits of Peace, a song suite dedicated to Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian. The world premiere for the composition will be performed in Macomb, the community where Vivian grew up. It'll feature tenor Alfonso Cooper Jr. and organist Linda Andrews, both of the School of Music at Western Illinois University. First Presbyterian Church has the nicest organ in town. Uh, it definitely has the quality that, that we would want for a composition such as this. And to uh, take it one, one step further, uh, Portraits of Peace was commissioned by First Presbyterian Church. So that's another reason why we're doing it there. What does uh, the Reverend uh, Vivian mean to each of you? Oh, man. Um, for C.T. Vivian, not only as clergy, not only, I know I'm not, not, I'm not saying I'm clergy, but him as a clergy member and a person who specifically did a lot of things in regards to civil rights and, 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 and helping and assisting for uh, people from my community specifically to like go to college. Uh, C.T. Vivian uh, was very instrumental in starting um, uh, Upward Bound and TRIO programs for uh, for specifically like uh, individuals from the baby boomer uh, kind of time period to go to college, specifically those in the South. Um, and so, you know, my uh, people like my, my, my grandparents and, you know, and, and individuals that, that around that age were afforded the opportunity to go to college, which instilled, you know, entailed open, uh, open doors for me to, to, to go to college and to have those particular grants and those particular types of um, situations out there that will allow uh, myself to have gone to a historically black college in the deep south of Georgia and to migrate to the Midwest for study and to, you know, work here in the Midwest. So, um, but I could keep going and going and going about C.T. Vivian, but I'm, I'm very grateful for his legacy to, you know, because because of the things he did, I'm, I'm able to talk about him. Well, it's interesting that, that my background is from Macomb because I was born and raised here. And I believe C.T. Vivian came here when he was about five years old mm -hmm. with, with his mother. So he grew up in Macomb from that point on, and he attended WIU. Well, as uh, a person uh, living here in Macomb, I didn't know much about C.T. Vivian until I was probably in well, beyond my college years. And things came out about him, and all good things, and, and the work that he did with the Civil Rights Movement. So that's another reason that I felt it was really important to uh, do this recital with Al and uh, perform some of this music that's dedicated to uh, Dr. Vivian as well as these other civil rights leaders. So you're performing a piece that has not been performed before. Does that pose special challenges? It does. It, it, it poses uh, some challenges where, um, because the music is so fresh, you know, the, the mm -hmm. ink is very wet, it poses challenge, and I think good challenge, um, you know, to, 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 to bring to life a, a, a creation of, 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 of musical genius that, uh, again, that the world knows really nothing about. <laughs> and just to add to, to what Al is saying, um, as an organist, every organ is, is different. And of course, every vocalist and singer that you work with will be different. 
So you have to come up with the right registrations or colors for the organ that will enhance what the singer is doing. And so that always presents a challenge. And this has never been recorded before. So again, we're just experimenting as we go to come up with the right combination of, of timbres and, and tempos. Um, just we're working to bring the piece to life. Linda Andrews and Alfonso Cooper Jr. will perform the world premiere of Portraits of Peace, a song suite dedicated to Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian. They say Dr. Sharon Willis will be in attendance. She composed the piece, and she's the founding director of AmeriColor Opera Alliance. Members of Vivian's family will also be present. Rich Egger reporting. Illinois now requires every public elementary and high school to teach about Black, Asian American, and LGBTQ history. Emily Hayes with Illinois Public Media reports on the state course that helps teachers do that. 250 teachers gathered over Zoom on Tuesday for I-3. It stands for Inclusive Inquiry-Based Social Studies for Illinois. Asif Wilson is a professor at the University of Illinois and the leader of I-3. He says it helps teachers listen to what students want to learn. The primary outcome is students being in social studies classrooms where they can ask critical questions about their experiences in the world and have the freedom to do something about it, to explore those things really deeply, to act in ways that they feel are appropriate. U of I runs the course for the Illinois State Board of Education. Teachers meet on Zoom every month for five months and complete assignments online in between. 500 teachers have completed the course so far. Emily Hayes with that report. monarch butterfly migration is well underway. The insects are due to arrive in Mexico just in time for the Day of the Dead in early November. For decades, scientists with the nonprofit group Monarch Watch have relied on thousands of volunteers to try to figure out the mysteries behind this long-distance journey. Harvest Public Media contributor Sheila Brummer has more. Ooh, ooh, ooh. At DeSoto National Wildlife Refuge near Missouri Valley, Everyone in the Ivy Caldwell family oh chases butterflies. He's going to land way up high. There's Mother Lori. Up above. Right. Father Julian and their two sons, 11-year-old Eli and 10-year-old Irvin. I really love butterflies. I loved them since I was little, and I loved catching them. They scamper through the wilderness of a warm Saturday in September with nets popping out over tall wildflowers through brush and trees. I think it's pretty amazing that you've got adults out chasing butterflies. You want to just grab it like that, just very gently, just like that, okay. Park ranger Peter Ray oversees several late summer outings where volunteers carefully catch and mark each monarch with a tiny sticker before letting them go. There it goes. Adios. <laughs> the goal at the refuge is to tag 300 butterflies this season for researchers to try and follow their path. People who find the tagged insects can enter information with Monarch Watch online. Every creature counts, since only about 1% are ever recorded dead or alive in Mexico. And they're not flying with any other butterfly that has done it. It's an amazing migration. Ranger Ray says a migration of hundreds or thousands of miles. Chip Taylor launched Monarch Watch at the University of Kansas in 1992 to monitor migration east of the Rockies. 
There's something about a monarch that seems to capture the feelings of people. He wanted to know more. As we knew that the monarchs first reached the overwintering sites in Mexico almost on the same day every year. And how is that possible? So we came up with the idea that maybe this is all synchronized with celestial changes. And it turns out that it is. Through the tagging of more than 2 million butterflies spanning more than 30 years, scientists uncovered more details. A majority come from the Midwest. And size matters. You don't want to be a small pipsqueak here because you don't have the glide power. Taylor says monarch butterfly numbers soared before wide herbicide use and the loss of habitat created a dramatic fall in the 90s. He's seen lower but steady populations during the past decade. Monarchs will always be with us, but we could easily lose this migration unless climate change is abated in some way. Taylor says drought affects the food supply. Hot temperatures can also impact breeding and slow the butterflies down, making it difficult sometimes for them to reach Mexico in time. The focus now is to tag those still around. Goodness gracious, this is not as easy as it looks. From veterans to those like the Ivy Caldwell family, we're just learning about the flightful creatures. <laughs> Trying to catch a moving target can be difficult. These butterflies fly high and fast. They're crafty. They're very crafty. Yeah, they're very crafty. They bagged almost a dozen if you count the one that got away. And Irvin picked up a few pointers. I learned how to tell a male and female apart. There's dots on the male's wings and none on the female's. It's that type of hands-on experience that thrills Chip Taylor. With the age of 86, plants a metamorphosis of his own. After volunteering all of these years, he will soon step down as director of Monarch Watch. He set up an endowment to ensure advocacy and appreciation of monarchs lives on. I did. I caught one. <laughs> For Harvest Public Media, I'm Sheila Brummer. That will wrap up this episode of Statewide. Thanks for joining us and be with us again next time. We'll have more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find our episodes through this station's website and at nprillinois.org. Look for us where you get your podcasts and also through the NPR app. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois, with help from other Illinois public radio stations. Bye.